God's plan for a healthy church. Uh, study through the books of First and Second Corinthians. We're in the section called material possessions, which is all of Second Corinthians eight and all of Second Corinthians nine. We're kind of laying a foundation uh, on that, and we're going to open your Bibles to Genesis eight today, so you can preempt that if you'd like. Go to Genesis eight. According to Greek mythology, Midas, the Phrygian king, asked a favor of the gods. You know the story. They agreed to grant him anything he desired. King decided to make the best of their offer so that he asked that whatever he touched in the future would be turned to gold. According to the story, the wish was granted, but the consequences were severe. He placed his hand on a rock, and immediately it became a huge chunk of gold. He laid his hand on his staff. It too became a rod of precious gold. First, the king was overcome with joy, returned to his palace as one of the most favored kings. But as he sat down to the dinner table, every item of food he touched turned into solid gold, and he realized this foolish wish would cause him to die in the midst of all of his newly found riches. And he remembered the ominous words of the gods, which were, they cannot take back their gifts. So he begged them to restore him to the coarsest, vilest food and deliver him from the curse of greed. And although this particular tale is a fable, we see the story manifested over and over again in our materialistic world. God often does bless people with wealth, but as we've seen already, it becomes a test of stewardship and a test of character, and he expects some of what he gives to be used for his service, and it's very sad to see uh, people who are never satisfied with what God has already blessed them with. Now, as we pick up in the study, uh, we're really building a foundation for the understanding of the New Testament standard for giving, which we will continue to see in Second Corinthians 8 and 9. And that has to do with managing material things. And we've seen over and over in the last several weeks a consistent theme in the Word of God, which we'll see again concerning the character issues related to material things. And to lay this essential foundation, we've looked at a number of passages which are so helpful in evaluating our own position as it relates to what we have, and we won't go through that, uh, over all of that again. So if you've missed any of that portion, I would strongly encourage you to go and catch it on Spotify or Together in the Word YouTube channel and, and catch up to where we are because these are important principles that you will find very relevant for you as you begin to look at what you have and begin to take Second Corinthians 8 and 9 and assimilate that information and begin to use your, your what you have in that way. Last week we celebrated our fifth Sunday of, in May with our PTA service and communion, and, and now that we're back, we're really returning to a biblical view of acquiring wealth, and it really is spiritual instructions for a material world. That's really what it is. And you're going to see a lot of information here. I hope that it's helpful for you, very exciting for me to go through it again with you. And we're going to follow a biblical view of acquiring wealth with biblical priorities for the use of wealth, and they kind of meld together, and in, certainly in Second Corinthians 8 and 9, they're assumed knowledge. And so it's important for us then to, to take a look at that. But as we look at a biblical view of acquiring wealth, really framed inside the questions that uh, we, we asked several weeks ago determining whether or not we love money. So while we keep that in mind as we looked at some of those things, the biblical view of acquiring wealth might not have been a question you thought the Bible addressed, especially in the middle of a society in which some embraced this idea of income equality and forced redistribution of, of wealth, which is really just the sins of covetousness and lust mask and fake morality. And, and now even more recently with a slew of looting and robbery, uh, some of it in the name of, of getting what we're owed, which again is just uh, greed and jealousy masked in a counterfeit guise of social justice. So we see it manifest all over the place. It, it's, not, it's not hidden. And they tr people try to mask it and justify what they're doing so that it makes it look like it's right, but it's never right. But when we think about this biblical view of acquiring wealth in light of our cultural situation, we may be kind of ashamed. Well, does the Bible say that and it's okay to do it? And, and what does the Bible have to say in general about all of this stuff? Because we have people shouting so loudly that that must be immoral. So is it okay to have something and more than, more than just the basics if, if God allows that? That's really the question the Bible takes on over and over again. And so we'll look at it too. And we posed a few observations that we saw were really foundational in the scriptures last, we, uh, last time we were together which really gives us a biblical view, uh, a biblical worldview concerning these kinds of things. The first one was that God's created a material world. It's made up of things that are meant to be used up, as a matter of fact, and, and I think you can see that fairly easily. Number two, uh, the world was not created to last forever. 
our own physical laws tell us that, that it's winding down. And not only that, it's wearing out like a garment. And like a worn-out garment, it's going to be thrown out. And God has already said that very clearly numerous times in the Scriptures. Number three, the world we live in is a natural world, and thus it's temporary. And it's disposable. And then number four, the world that we live in will be used up, and when it was, and then it will be destroyed like Jason read today. And a new heaven and a new earth will be spoken into being uh, by the Lord. And, and we pointed all this out. It's very, really very simplistic, but this is a biblical worldview which has been dramatically skewed by the culture. But a biblical view of all of that is that we live on a young earth. It was created to be used up. And when it was, when it's used up, God's going to dispose of it and he's going to make a new one. And there isn't some cosmic plane and there isn't a mother earth or a mother nature or any of those kinds of things. The earth and the things on it, with the exception of men and angels, do not have souls. There's no universe awareness. The universe didn't decide things and all the things that we hear over and over again, which are just foolishness. Things on earth are not eternal. They don't have eternal destinies. They were put on earth to support Adam and Eve and all of their descendants, and we fall into that category. So to support our lives, to provide for our needs, to make our lives comfortable and enjoyable for us. And and things like the beauty of nature, which we didn't talk about last time, as God accommodates it with our ability to appreciate it. So we're surrounded by beauty, and many of us like to be outdoors. We see this all the time. It, it, we have pictures captured in our mind of places we've been that were just so amazing, and we can reproduce that, and people who are good at art can draw that, and they can photograph it, and that's the Lord giving his blessing on that and abilities to do those kinds of things. And, and in architecture and all of those things, get, these things get reproduced. And, and things like the variety of foods, if we think about that, you know, God accommodated that with the ability to taste it and to appreciate it, and with the different plants and the animals and the spices and the drinks that all go with that. And he invites us to come to a marriage supper of the Lamb, which undoubtedly will be unlike anything we've experienced up until that point. So this is not done in secret, and this is not on the side and perhaps something we need to be ashamed of. This is the world the Lord's created. And it just seems obvious, but I think it's important to just go ahead and say it, because I think we have some false guilt associated with these kinds of things, because the culture shouts very loudly about things that don't matter. And he could have created us, if you think about it, with no taste buds. And when we were hungry, you know, this is how my mind works, you know, supplied us with the most basic, vile kinds of food like King Midas asked for. And we just would work it down and it would just satisfy us and take us to the next time we needed to eat. He could have done that. I mean, God could have do, uh, done anything he wanted, right? He didn't have to make it like it is, but he did. And, and things like types of smells and fragrances, and these are just obvious, beloved. But I mean, if you think about flowers like lilac and gardenia, these are temporary things. The Lord made them, and you know why he made them? He made them so that you and I could enjoy them, because they don't last. Jesus even said in Matthew 6, didn't they? That they are here today, and, and tomorrow they're thrown in the fire. How much more valuable are you than they? And yet God decks them out in beauty and arraignment better than Solomon. And so that should give you a little snapshot, and they were all created and given with you in mind. And, and the only thing, beloved, the only thing of eternal value created with the earth is man. Just man. And these observations from scripture, they're not complex. They are, are demonstrably true. And we saw last time that man was created in the image of God. He has an eternal soul and everything else does not. And man was given the authority, we saw last time, and the dominion over everything that was created and all of those other things, no matter how amazing they are, how similar in design, they all just point to a, a single designer, God, and his unique and spectacular ability to create. And they will all pass away, every single one of those things, but every man and woman will live forever. And that, I think, changes the whole priority, doesn't it, of thinking you are the pinnacle of God's creation. And this was made for you. Okay? So don't let anybody tell you, you know, after you evolved 200 million years ago, that everything went downhill. First of all, the first part's not true. And the second part is, without you, there would be none of this because this was made for you. So, all these other things, these material things, they're created by God for man's use, even for your comfort and for the richness of life. And when you look at them correctly, they illustrate for us in no small amount of detail just how gracious God's character is. And these things that God has made for men are extended to all men, and they are part of, we saw last time, common grace or general graciousness that will be part, I think, of the judgment to follow, where people neither thank God or give glory to him for the things that are around them. And so there will be judgment connected with 
the wonderful things that God has made that people have taken advantage of and yet have not glorified him and come to a saving knowledge of his son. Because everyone, even the wicked world, receives blessings in the material world. And all these resources and all the richness of life and the richness of his creation. And God all, God does all of these things, beloved, because it is his desire to do them. Obviously, right? It is his, it's in his mind that he wanted to do it and he did it. Otherwise it wouldn't exist. Just obviously he doesn't do anything that he doesn't want to do. Right? So if he did it, that's because he desired to do it. And, and it demonstrates to us, Mark, this, this, his lavish generosity. And when you think about all of those good things and so much more that we haven't even mentioned, it really is astonishingly humble, humbling for us to think that he has done all these things on our behalf. And I want to start there because I think we take a beating in the world on a regular basis because, you know, somehow we're wrecking everything. And when he gives these things, we saw last time we're going to see this over and over again. He gives them to generate a response of thankfulness and gratitude that is expressed in obedience and, of course, cause us to emulate him. Now, last time we ended up uh, with a look in Genesis 1, and we won't go through all of that again, but it gave us the support for the observations that I just gave you and, and answered some questions about why the earth was made and, and what God intended to happen on it. And, and God made a material world to be subdued and, and that he only gave it for the enriching of men because, and because that's the case, then we said this. And this is where we're really going to go um, today. Number one, there must be a correct way to acquire things from the material world out of the richness that God's provided. In his gracious and his boundless generosity, there must be a way to acquire those things that's pleasing to him. Otherwise, he wouldn't have given it and wouldn't have told people to do it. He didn't have to make a world like this, but he did. Number two, and while that's happening... We need to remember that all the wealth is temporary. It's all going to burn up. He created it in that way, and he's already told us it's going to happen. And, and so we thank him for what he has uh, given us, what we have and what we enjoy, and the comfort that it extends to us, realizing that it comes from him, and he gives it to us just for the joy and the richness that it adds to our life. And that's really very, very simple. And keep in your mind that it will be, as you enjoy those things, ash someday in the not-too-distant future. And so hold on to it loosely and don't be greedy. And then number three, realize that there's no mandate from God for poverty. So here in Genesis, God affirms the goodness of all creation. There will be people who are in poverty. Jesus said, the poor you'll only have, always have with you. There's nothing wrong with just having a little. And there's also, as we've said before, and I'll say again today, there's no end if you decide that you're more spiritual by stripping everything off. Exactly how much do you have to strip down before you're spiritual enough to please God? And that's an absurd thing. We'll look at that in just a minute. Now, I'd like you to look at Genesis chapter 8. You're already there. And, and this really is, as we're going to look at this, these will be spiritual instructions for a material world. Genesis chapter 8, verse 22 is where we're going to start. And I just want you to read along with me. I'm going to read these passages and then comment as we uh, kind of work our way through. Genesis chapter 8, verse 22. It says this, that while the earth remains... Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. Now, I want to stop right there and just make this comment. The context is that Noah has come out of the ark after the flood. And everything, of course, has been wrecked and now is growing back. And so he's coming out and he is offering a burnt offering in worship. And all the animals are exiting the ark at this time and going off in their different groups. And, and the Lord says... To Noah, I'm not going to destroy the world with water again, even though man is evil. I know their inclination. I'm not going to destroy it. So here's a couple of things that are takeaway. So while there is an earth, because then it says while the earth remains, so while there's an earth spinning around in our solar system, mark this, it's going to keep on spinning. Okay. So AOC, who says in 12 years, you know, everything's going, you know, we're done and whatever. Just, just ignore all of that, okay? Very clearly to Noah, the earth is going to keep on spinning. Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night. That's not going to cease. And things are going to work as they should. Now, I'd like you to look at chapter 9, verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. 
Verse 2, the fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground and all flesh, uh, all fish of the sea into your hand they are given. Every, verse 3, moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. I'll stop right there. Now remember, and you know this from Sunday school probably, or if you've read your Bible, you know this. How many of each animal kind were there at this time? Come on, kids. How many, how many went to the ark? And you would think that perhaps during the time in the ark, there maybe were some offspring born. So as they exit, maybe there's the two originals, and then there's a few more coming out, perhaps. So not that many total. I mean, if you think about the whole wide world and what would fit on the ark, so not that many that were there. Probably the original two and maybe some offspring, but... but um, some of those are going to exit were undoubtedly young versions of what we in this world today would label as dinosaurs. They would not survive, we know this, over the next several thousand years because of the climate change that occurred after the flood. You mean the climate changed? Yeah, it's been changing all along. Not surprising to us, is it? And it changed dramatically after the flood. So that shouldn't excite us too awfully much. But some of those didn't survive. But the Lord gave the animals into the hand of Noah and extended his and his extended family, and you fall into that category. And he gave a general decree that they were what? They were good for food. Now, there weren't that many of them right then. Okay. So, as Noah's thinking, they're good for food, but, I mean, there's only a few. But the Lord still said, this is what's going to happen. Why? Because while the earth remains, seed time, harvest, cold heat, summer, winter, day and night shall not see. The animals are going to go back. They're going to repopulate and I'm going to give them to you for food. And obviously the Lord knows that the, the population is going to expand rather rapidly and there's going to be a huge demand of food, but the Lord's not worried, is he? Why? Because he's the one that made all this and he made the earth to sustain men. So he's not in a panic. So that's where we are. All this is handed down to Noah and his descendants and you and I qualify for that. Right, And then he said this, he gave the general decree that, that uh, the animals would be afraid of Noah. So if you think about this, I mean, they just spent more than a year in the ark with all these animals. Somebody was feeding them, somebody was cleaning up after them. If you've been to the ark encounter, you realize there's probably some ways they do that to make it a little easier. But eight people caring for all those animals was probably, I mean, if you ever worked on a farm, I mean, just multiply that probably by a power of 10 and you probably get the same smell and all of that just increased. So they're taking care of it. So they have a, a relationship with the animals, but as soon as they exit the ark, what does the Lord say? You're not going to have that same relationship with them anymore. They're going to be afraid of you, and they're going to run. So look at Genesis, or Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 6, if you would. Flip over from Genesis 8:22 or 8, uh, 9 to, to uh, Deuteronomy 8, 6. What I want to do is drop in on this verse again and kind of apply what we've learned. So we're Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 6. Look there. And, and we think about a biblical way, kind of applying what we just understood about what the Lord just gave uh, to Noah and his descendants, which you and I qualify. If we think about a biblical way to acquire wealth and to use it, and, and we're going to look at this another passage from Deuteronomy 14 to do the same thing. But Deuteronomy 8 is going to give us an idea of what happened after that. And, of course, we're fast-forwarding into the future, and we're, we're picking up when, when Israel is, is coming into the land, obviously. So maybe a thousand years after the flood, maybe a little less, somewhere in that general area. So verse 6 says this, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 6. It says, um, therefore, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. Verse 7, for the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water and of fountains and springs flowing forth in valleys and hills. A land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey. So you, you fast forward from, from the flood, you have a destroyed earth wiped clean, you have everything growing back apparently. It did pretty well because now there's land is just overabundance and Israel's going to inherit some of it. And they're coming into a land and it has a whole lot of good things in it. Brooks of water and fountains and springs and flowing forth in valleys and hills and lands and wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey. So sounds pretty good. So they're coming in. Now mark this. When God made the world, he filled it with assets. And when he picked a land for his own people, he picked the best land to be had anywhere and he gave it to them. See, that, that's the heart of God. I'm, I'm going to give you this. Gracious, goodness, generosity. 
And then listen to what he says to them. Look at verse 9. A land where you will eat food without scarcity, in which you will not lack anything. A land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. Just stop real quick and just take a look at that. So God provided an abundance of food, so they weren't on rations by any stretch. They were literally, the word is overflowing with food. And God says you won't lack for anything that pertains to living. That's the idea. And when you're overflowing, it's more than you can use, so some, no doubt, gets thrown away. Is that a bad thing? Well, not according to the God who owns everything and gives it to whomever he wishes. He supports everything. He's the one who gives it the ability to do what it does, and he says you're going to have an overabundance of food. And he said back in Genesis that the earth will be sustained and it will continue to provide what's needed. And then you mean mining and you know extracting minerals from the earth isn't a modern bane on the land? Not even close. It's not a bane, and it isn't modern. In Job 28, right after the Tower of Babel, and before and during the time of Abraham, men were already well advanced in mining and extracting minerals from the earth and, and processing them. And so now in this passage, we're more than 400 years later, so this is old news. Verse 10, when you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. And here's God, once again, affirming these things. He tells Israel, enjoy all of these things, all these things that I provide for you. Dig out of the earth and, and raise it or eat it and make things from it so you don't lack for anything. And all of this given for the use and the blessing of man. They have no eternal value. None of this stuff is going to last. It's all going to be burned up just for now. And when you enjoy it, what? Give him thanks. Bless the Lord your God. That's what it means. In other words, recognize that he is the giver and sovereign, and he owns it all, and he created it all, and it's all good, and he's generous, and he's thoughtful, and he's creative, and he's so kind. And so in other words, it's encouraging us to what? To, to worship him. We just sang a song, didn't we? Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, O oh my soul. Right? Th that's the idea. And so this, this is a spiritual approach to a material world. When he gives what he gives, whatever it is, you thank him for it, and you bless him because he's so good, and he's so kind, and he's so generous with us all the time. Now look at verse 11, and really he begins his warnings here. So he's, he just affirms all of this. This is not a bad thing. Don't, don't feel guilty about this. You wouldn't have anything if I didn't give it to you. The earth is the Lord's in all its fullness, and he's the one who gives it to every person according to his own purposes. So you wouldn't have anything if he didn't give it to you, and if he gives it to you, you enjoy it, and you thank him for it. God is well pleased. But there's some warnings here along with it. Now look at verse 11. Beware, he says, that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I am commanding you today. So there's the first warning, and it's a concern that God has, and we've seen it over and over again, and here it is. How well you remember to obey him and to honor him. He isn't concerned by how wealthy you are. You wouldn't have anything if he didn't give it to you, okay? And he has supplied it to you richly to enjoy, First Timothy 6 says. What he is concerned about, though, is your response. See, when in whatever he has provided you, your heart is grateful and thankful to him. It will work its way out in obedience. And when that happens, he's well pleased. And then he continues his warnings in verse 12. Look there. Otherwise, when you have eaten and you're satisfied, so you're not being obedient, so you're not following his ordinances, he says, be careful that you don't, that you don't get what you have and then forget to keep my commandments and do what I told you to do. Otherwise, when you've eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and verse 13, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, just stop right there, okay? So nothing wrong with comfortable houses, nothing wrong with being filled and satisfied, nothing wrong with having some comforts. The Lord provided, if the Lord has given to you in that way, then there's nothing wrong with those kinds of things. And, and he says, herds and flocks are going to multiply for them and silver and gold multiplies and anything you have multiplies. And just as a footnote to think about, okay, if God had wanted everyone to be at the same level, like Marxism says is utopia, or if God had wanted everyone to live like the hundreds of millions of godless people live around the world who, in turning away from God, have stripped their lives of his goodness. He could have done that, right? And in 1 Corinthians 10-11, if you probably remember this passage, 
when you see that kind of thing, when you see the nations that came before Israel and they were devastated, the Lord removed them from the land. And when you look around modern times and you see uh, certain portions of the world and they are just in poverty, they've rejected the Lord, they've embraced idols, they worship false gods constantly, and their land is bankrupt of most everything that it would take to survive, see? First, First Corinthians 10, 11 says these things happened to them. And so we look back, we see the judgments that came on people. These things happened to them for an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. In other words, you can look back and see what happens when people decide they don't want to follow God's law. God's a good and gracious and wonderful uh, Savior and King, and he has given everything to enjoy. And if you don't obey his instructions, he can strip it all away. And, and we see that example. We saw it in the ancient times. We can see it now. That's just the idea there, okay? So, you know, plagues came on them and as we look back in, in ancient times, you know, and the destroyer came and killed them because they disobeyed. But if he had wanted everyone to always live like that, just in a bankrupt state, just in a state where nobody has anything, like Marxism says or whatever, just having the basics and nothing else, barely ecking out a living, if he wanted everybody to live like that, he could have created a barren planet like all the other ones in our solar system, but he didn't, did he? You have richness beyond your imagination around you that God has provided. And, and so when the Lord provides these things in his graciousness and, and, he, and his generosity and his liberality, and they are all around us, here's the real issue. Look at verse 14. Then your heart will become proud. So just to pick up where we said, when, when you've eaten and you're satisfied, why? Because there's an overabundance of everything that's there. So when you've eaten and are satisfied, you've built good houses and you lived in them, so you're comfortable, you have, you've made a good living, you've surrounded yourself with some comfort, and your herds and your flocks multiply, your silver and gold multiplies, all you have multiplies, your bank accounts are full, and you have everything you think you need. The very thing we looked at before that is the deceptiveness of riches, which makes you think you've insulated yourself from things that are going to happen to you, from catastrophe, and somehow things are good because you have all this, you don't think that you are in any need. So when that happens and that deceptiveness comes in, then your heart will become proud, verse 14, and you'll forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and he led you through the great and terrible wilderness, verse 15, with his fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, and he brought water for you out of the rock of Flint. Verse 16, in the wilderness he fed you manna which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and he might test you to do good for you in the end. Otherwise you may say in your heart, and this is always the issue, beloved, it's always a heart issue when it comes to material things. It's the reason why we read Second Corinthians 8 9 and think there's no possible way I could do that. It's the reason why we see the widow, the story of the widow, where she put in all she had to live in and people think I couldn't do that. See, because it's always a hard issue. What's the hard issue? Otherwise, you may say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth, but you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who's giving you the power to make wealth. In other words, you have this idea that if you gave everything you had, you wouldn't be able to make it because you're the only one who's providing it. Do you understand? It's a very simple connection, but very hard for us to process. But this is always the case, modern times, ancient times, no matter what it is, when material things get interjected, the Lord wants us to remember to take a look at our heart and make sure that we don't love those things. See? Otherwise, you may say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand may be this wealth. See, God's gracious. He even extends that graciousness to all men, but especially those who call on his name. And please mark this, that no matter what level he's blessed you, he just wants you to remember who gave it to you. And then when you do that, let it work its way out in thankfulness and worship, which has as a fruit obedience. Be obedient. And when you do that, God says to his people that he may confirm, verse 18, he may confirm the covenant which he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. So as it's directed to Israel, who are there for our example, whom the end of the ages has come. We just saw that. That he may have confirmed his covenant, which he swore to your fathers, as it is to the city. In other words, I'll be able to continue to bless you. That's what he says to Israel. And bring about the promises I promised you. See, God says, you're the only ones who have the power to derail the plan I have for you. And that derailment will come in the form of disobedience. And that's what he says in verse 19. Then it shall come about, if you ever forget the Lord your God, look there, and go after other gods and serve them and worship them. I testify you to you today that you will surely perish. Like the nations... And here's where it becomes much more broad than just Israel. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so you shall perish. And so it's, it's worldwide, isn't it, beloved? It's not just localized here to the promised land. It's worldwide. The same principle applies. Obey the Lord. 
he, he pours blessing out. And when you obey, you're responding to him in thankfulness and, and, and gratefulness for what he has done. And the nations disobeyed and they stripped themselves of God's blessing and the nations do that today all around the world. He says you're going to end up doing the same thing to yourselves. And, and we're back to the same issue that is here over and over again. The way you handle wealth and material goods is a barometer of your spiritual state. And if you use what the Lord has given to disobey him, he may take it. But if you have the right approach, thanking God for it, responding in obedience to him on how you use it, worshiping him with it, God is well pleased. And there's no guilt associated with those kinds of things. See? Now, I'd like you to look, hold your finger here in Deuteronomy 8 and turn to Deuteronomy 14. Will you do that, please? Deuteronomy 14. We're covering a lot of scripture, but I think it'll be uh, very beneficial to you because of the way they interact with each other so well, and you kind of get a, a, a great worldview of material things. But look, look at Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 22 is where we're going to pick up. And this is another issue related to acquiring things and using it in obedience, and it has to do with sharing. So this is our first step, and, and really, as we really come into contact with the idea that's expressed to us so clearly, that Paul saw it demonstrated so vividly in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Okay? Now, it is set in ancient times, and so we'll, we'll make the connection of what is still for today and all of that. But just bear with me as we read and get the general idea of how this is all set up. So Deuteronomy 14.22 it says, you shall surely tithe all the produce from which you sow, which comes out of the field every year. Now, stop right there. We're going to see as we go through this study, particularly later, we're going to take a close look at why or why not a tithe. And so I'm going to save a lot of the teaching for that time and so that we can understand how all this works. But the word for tithe here is simply the word for tenth. That's always the word for it. Okay, so when you see tithe, you just see tenth. It's a mathematical term. It deals with a percentage. It's very easy to understand. Now, so you shall surely tithe all of the produce from which you sow, which comes out of the field every year. And we know from chapter 8 that they will be landowners, and they're going to be herdsmen, and they're going to be farmers, not to mention miners and craftsmen and all of that. And they are instructed to give a tenth. And just as a footnote here, this is one of the three tithes or tenths that they were instructed to give. This one was the festival tithe, or the festival tenth. Also, there was a Levitical tithe, which was a tenth that was dedicated to support the priests. That's in Leviticus 27 and Numbers 18. And we'll look at all that later. And there was also the welfare tithe for the poor and those less fortunate. And that was the tenth that was every three years. So that adds up to about 23 and a third percent of your income, or whatever you profited during that year, 23 and a third percent per year. So when people say, well, you know, the Old Testament, there was a tithe, so that's what we should do. Well, in reality, in the Old Testament, it was 23 and a third, okay? So don't get your ideas that it, it was just 10 percent and we're good, okay? So, and that's why we don't go back to the Old Testament and use that as an example, but we're going to get into all of that, okay? So I'm just giving you the, the, just the overall picture here of what's going on. Now look at verse 23. It says this, so verse 22 says, you shall surely tithe all the produce from what you sow, which comes out of the field every year. Verse 23, you shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God at the place where he chooses to establish his name, the tithes of your grain, your new wine, your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and your flocks, so that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. Now pause right there. So here's kind of a summary. God told them each year a tenth of everything they had produced had to be taken to Jerusalem, because that's where the Lord has set his name, we understand that, to one of the great festivals. So they're going to go anyway, they were required to go, and at this point, uh, because at this point in their history, they were three great festivals, unleavened bread, harvests, or weeks, and tabernacles. Those three were the ones that were established. There were some more that came along, but these are the ones that we know are here now. And so they come to this great festival, and they share this tenth with all the others who come to the festival or the national holidays who don't have what they have. And that prompted fellowship and it showed obedience to God because God said to do it. And it also caused them to be there to offer the appropriate sacrifices that they were supposed to offer during those festivals anyway. So those who owned the land and those who raised crops and those who tended animals and those who took their wealth from those things came then and shared 
with those who didn't have all of those things. So you had some who were minors, some who were craftsmen, and they had those kinds of other kinds of things which they would give. But when you came to the festival, there was going to need to be eating and drinking and all those kinds of things. And so these people who gained their wealth from the land, and the Lord said, you know, your crops are going to multiply and your house will be comfortable and all these, all these things multiply. You're going to take a tenth of that each year and you're going to take it with you and you're going to go to the festival. And so that's how that worked. Now, look at what's for 24. And this is God's command, okay? So it's part of obeying him. Uh, when you're thankful for what he's done, you do what he says, and this is part of what he said to do. Look at 20, verse 24. If the distance is so great for you that you're not able to bring the tithe, since the place where the Lord your God chooses to set his name is too far away from you, when the Lord your God blesses you. So you get to the end of the year, and you're far away from Jerusalem. You could be at the other end of the kingdom, and that might be a long distance. And the idea is you might not be able to move everything down there. Okay, it's the idea of packing up a huge amount of stuff, perhaps a lot of livestock, a lot of grain. It's a long distance, and it's like, whoa! I, I mean, maybe I, maybe it's a huge amount. Maybe I don't have enough help to get it there. Uh, whatever it's, a, whatever it is, it's a long distance. Whatever a legitimate reason would be, but the Lord just says, listen, if it's the distance is too great and you can't bring the tithe, since the place where the Lord chooses His name is too far away from you, when He blesses you, verse twenty-five, then. You shall eat, or you shall exchange it for money and bind the money in your hand. Okay, so here's the other option. You cash out. So he has this huge inventory of your tents, herds, grain, whatever. You can't get it there. You're not off the hook. Okay, so what do you have to do? You have to, you have to sell it. And you exchange all of that tent that you brought in, a part of that, what you brought in that year, you change that, you exchange that for cash. And then it says, bind the money in your hand. What does that mean? It just means don't let it burn a hole in your pocket, okay? You bind it in your hand. It's for a specific use. It's not like you're like, oh, my word, this is a lot of money. Let's go do the, you know, I need a new car. I need a new gun. I need a whatever, okay? You know how we are. So bind the money of your hand. Don't spend it for anything. And that's the equivalent in cash of what you brought in for a year's time. So it could be a serious amount of money. And it could certainly burn a hole in your pocket. And God says, don't let that do it. Keep it in your hand. Then what? So it says, shall exchange it for money and bind it the money in your hand and, look at verse 25, go to the place which the Lord your God chooses so that you may spend the money for whatever your heart desires, for oxen, for sheep, for wine, or strong drink, or whatever your heart desires, and there you shall eat it in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. Verse 27, also you shall not neglect the Levite who is in your town, for he has no portion or inheritance among you. So, stop right there. So, and so, Say they can't go with all their tents because it's too far and they have too much. So they cash it out and they take the cash with them. And then they go to Jerusalem and they buy what they need to what? To share with everybody else who's there in the celebration of the festivals of Jerusalem. So you're still doing exactly the same thing. The Lord just gives you an option to not herd up all the herds and all the grain and all the wagons and just try to make it Jerusalem with all that stuff. Just bring the cash and do the exact same thing. See, And he also tells them to watch out for the guy from the tribe of Levi who is in their town and, and use some of the tents to take care of him as well. Maybe they bring him along with them to the feast and maybe they give him some of the proceeds of the sale or maybe they give him some of the increase, whatever it is. It just it, The Lord just reminds them because the Lord, when he divided up the land, you remember this, the Levite's portion was the Lord. So he wasn't allowed to have land specifically allotted to him. The Lord gave him cities to dwell in, but he didn't have land. So then he didn't have an ability to prosper like they did. And so God says, don't forget to share with this tribe. So it's just this added on, don't forget, this guy didn't have land like you did and make sure you take care of him. And then the, go the Lord says, verse 28, and at the end of every third year, so here's this, the third, where we get the 23 and a third percent. At the end of every third year, you shall bring out all the tithes of your produce in that year and shall deposit it in your town. Verse 29, the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance among you, the alien, the orphan, the widow who are in your town shall come and eat and be satisfied in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand which you do. So there's this idea, this tenth given every three years to take care of the poor and those with very little. But I'm sure you can see just in this little snapshot, we're going to look at this more in depth a lot later, but this tenth given every three years to take care of the poor and those with very little, I'm sure you can see it comes very obvious from the text that God wanted to bless them in the work of their hand. See, But he introduces this idea to people that when they receive the riches that this material world brings them, they are to share it 
generously. And this is not an option. And we're going to see later, this is required giving, okay? Which is another reason why we say that the tithe is not for the New Testament time. Because this is required giving. W was it optional for them? Did they pass the plate and decide, well, maybe I'll give it, maybe I won't? Not according to this. They were required to do the tenth for the festival, and they were required to do this one, right? And so they do all of that, and, and then he, they do all that because the Lord wants them to learn to fear the Lord your God always. In other words, by doing that, they prove their obedience. And fearing the Lord starts by doing what he says, right? Don't say you fear the Lord and then you deliver and disobey his commands because you don't really fear him. And you're not really concerned about what he can do to get your attention, okay? But when you fear the Lord, you obey his commands. That's what he's saying here. Uh, when they share what God has provided as he's instructed them to do it, they're being obedient. And that sounds remarkably like 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, doesn't it? 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. In other words, don't think you made it all and don't grab your security by what you have, but what? But on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy and then instruct them to do good, be rich in good works and generous and ready to share. That's very interesting, isn't it? Because that's precisely the exact same types of commands that he gave to his people when they moved into the land. And so I think it's very obvious to us that there's a portion of what we make every single year that doesn't belong to us at all. I mean, I, I don't think we can get away from that, can we? It's pretty obvious. And that's the same basic principle we've seen in Deuteronomy 14. We find it right here. God blesses the work of your hands, and when he's done so, he requires that we take a portion and we share it. And, and these are spiritual instructions for a material world. Now, flip back, if you would, to Deuteronomy 8. And I want to read it again in light of what you just learned, okay? And I'm going to read it without interrupting it, except for one time, all the way to, I'm going to pick up a verse 11, and I'm going to finish in verse 18. So just read it with me, and then assimilate what we just learned, okay? Because these all, these all work together so well. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I'm commanding you today, and which were some of them, which was to share, okay? That was part of the commandments that made it into the whole dialogue. And so as, as Moses talks to the people, he knows some of the things the Lord's going to have him say, and he knows it's going to be included, this part about sharing. Okay, now look at verse 12. Otherwise, when you've eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and your herds and your flocks multiply, and your silver and your gold multiplies, and all that you have multiplies, verse 14, then your heart will become proud, and you'll forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, verse 15. He led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and its scorpions and its thirsty ground where there was no water, and he brought water for you out of the rock of flint. In the wilderness he fed you manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and he might test you to do good for you in the end. Otherwise you may say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth, but you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you the power to make wealth, that he may confirm his covenant, which he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. Stop right there. So the Lord wants to bless you. He very clearly says to his people, I want to do this for you. It's, it's going to happen to you. And and we will have, of course, as we translate that into the modern era, as we see what goes on in 1 Timothy 6, you know, you will have all of the riches God's planned for you in eternity. There's no question. You have an inheritance waiting for you set aside, whatever that may be, and whatever form that may take from a gracious, generous, faithful God, you will have that, okay? But to whatever degree he has bestowed them on you now, you give him glory, and you thank him, and you worship him, and you realize it's just one of the benefits of having as a creator God Almighty who has as a character trait goodness and has as a character trait generosity and, and use what he gives while manifesting those same character traits. See, Because God's that example of generosity and compassion and thoughtfulness. See, And, and remember... We saw in the New Testament, Paul says, you know, a father knows how to give good gifts to his children, right? Why does he give good gifts to? Why do you give good gifts to your children? Because you love them, don't you? And it says even a father knows how to give good gifts to his children. How much more does the Lord know how to give to those who are his? See, it's just very clear, whatever level the Lord's blessed you, 
some very little, some a lot. The Lord has us in the purposes and all of those things. But whatever it is, see, whatever it is, it shows us his character traits of goodness and generosity, and we manifest those same character traits in whatever it is by acting the same way. See. Now, in the time remaining, I want to fast forward again. Okay, We fast forwarded from this bountiful land the Lord made into Israel inheriting it, and it has prospered, even though there were only a few animals next into the ark. Obviously, they did okay. Now, except for some of them, which the Lord had determined weren't going to continue. And, you know, do you want to really want a velociraptor in your backyard? I mean, you're going to kill that right away if you're moving out to the country, okay? You don't want something picking up, you know, your kids, okay? So, obviously, some of them didn't make it. But look at Amos chapter 5, verse 7, if you would, okay? Look at Amos 5, 7. Fast forward there, all right? And um, this is Israel's future. So that's 25 books to the right. And when you hit Isaiah, then it's Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. Okay, so when you get to Isaiah, start slowing down, all right? And you're almost there. And these are very interesting passages because we're going to fast forward into Israel's future. And they've been in the land a long time, and we're going to see um, how they did with it, remembering what we just read and what the Lord told them to do. So let's see how they did, and uh, let's see what the Lord has to say to them. And this is directed specifically to the northern kingdom before Assyria comes and carries them away, and they never return. Okay, so... That's a little ominous. We got an idea of what's going to happen because the Lord said, I'm going to kick you out of the land if you don't do what you're supposed to do. And uh, we're going to see Amos chapter 5 or 7. Look there if you would. Now, just, a, uh, just a, a point. If your Bible was stuck together around Amos, that means you've never opened those passages before, all right? So don't let that happen again. You know, get into the minor prophets. Make sure you're going page by page and read through, all right? Just, just a point. Amos 5, 7. For those who turn justice into wormwood and cast righteousness down to the earth. Verse 8, He who made Pleiades and Orion and changes deep darkness into morning, who also darkens day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. Who are we talking about? The Lord. The Lord is his name. Verse 9. It is he who flashes forth with destruction upon the strong so that the destruction comes upon the fortresses. Verse 10. They hate him who reproves in the gate. And they abhor him who speaks with integrity. Therefore, because you impose heavy rent on the poor and exact a tribute of grain from them. Let's just pause right there. Whoops. That doesn't sound very good, does it? Are they doing what God asked them to do? No, they are not. Instead of being generous to the poor and sharing what God had provided for those who had need, what are they doing? They're doing the opposite of that. Imposing rent, imposing heavy taxes. They're supposed to set aside a tenth every three years so that those with very little could be taken care of. They were supposed to leave, as we see later, the corners of their fields unharvested so the poor could come and harvest. And anything that fell off the wagon once the harvest occurred, they weren't supposed to go back and pick it up. They left that for the poor and the less fortunate so they could pick it up. And, and Boaz and Ruth are a perfect example of that working its way out. But that's not what they're doing. They are just using the richness that God has provided on themselves, and they're not satisfied even with that, and they don't like people telling them not to do it. That's what verse 10 says. They hate him who refuses in the gate and abhor him who speaks with integrity. So when people say, uh, you probably shouldn't do that, they don't like that. They don't like people telling them what to do with what they made because it belongs to them. You kind of see this attitude. So what's he say? Well, verse 11 says, Therefore, because you oppose heavy rent on the poor and exact contributive grain for them, Though you have built houses of well-hewn stone, yet you will not live in them. You've planted pleasant vineyards, yet you will not drink their wine. And once again, is there anything wrong with those things? No. God's already told them that they would increase. He already told them they would build beautiful houses and live in them. He already told them they would be comfortable in the land and everything that they had would increase, right? He provides everything because he owns it all. He does it all in his sovereignty. It's not a secret. And he already told him, this is a rich land. I'm giving you the best land. As you move into it, it's going to be great for you. Just don't forget me. And I have some instructions for you about how you're to manage some of what you have. And I'm going to make sure that you do it so that you show that you fear me. So then we fast forward into their future. And what's happening? Just the opposite. So there's nothing wrong with well, having well-hewn houses out of hewn stone. Uh, but you're not going to live in them, God says. And you have planted vineyards. And they're pleasant. But you're not going to drink from them. Verse 12. For I know your transgressions are many and your sins are great. You who desire the righteous, who distress the righteous and accept bribes and turn aside the poor in the gate. 
How'd they handle what the Lord had given them? And that single principle we see over and over again, you have all these things. What's, what's your heart attitude? Was it an attitude of thanksgiving and praise of God's goodness revealed in obedience? No, they didn't want people to tell them what to do. They, they distress the righteous. They accept bribes. They turn aside the poor and the gate. Everything's about money, right? Everything's about money. So it wasn't a thing, uh, an attitude of thanksgiving and praise of God's goodness. Now look at verse 13. Therefore, at such a time, the prudent person keeps silent. So in other words, they're looking around, they're seeing the land and what's going on here. It's like, oh my, this is not good. For it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil that you may live. And thus may the Lord God of hosts be with you, just as you have said. Hate evil, love good, and establish justice in the gate. Perhaps the Lord God of hosts may be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. So he tells them that there still may be time to change course. Not doing what I told you to do. Switch, head a different direction. Look at verse 16. Therefore says, thus says the Lord God of hosts, the Lord, there is wailing in all the plazas, and in all the streets they say, alas, alas. They also call the farmer to mourning and the professional mourners to lamentation. Verse 17, and in all the vineyards there is wailing because I will pass through the midst of you, says the Lord. Notice where the wailing is occurring? Right where they could be doing well, right? Out in the where the farmer's fields are and in the vineyards and in the streets. Judgment is coming. Verse 18, alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness, not light. In other words, there, here's a people who say they're called by God's name, and they say, I can't wait for the day of the Lord, I can't wait for the day of the Lord. And yet, by the way they use what they have and the way they do their life, the day of the Lord is not going to be a joyous day for them, see? I think that's just as relevant in the modern church as it was in the ancient times. That people say, oh, I can't wait for the Lord to come back, and yet on a day-to-day -day life level, not obeying the words of the Lord not doing what he said to do, not being salt and light, not going out and, and spreading the gospel, you know, using what the Lord has given for your own self, not sharing anything. It's the exact same issue. Oh, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. It's God's people saying, can't wait for to see God. And, and the Lord says, you know, will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light, even gloom with no brightness in it? Verse 21, I hate, I reject your festivals. These are festivals the Lord had set up and yet they had not turned out. They had not done what they were supposed to do at the festival. So the Lord says, I just hate them. Nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies when you come before me. Even, verse 22, though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings. So they're going through the motions that they're supposed to do. Bring in the cattle that they're supposed to bring. But it's just, it's just motions. It's not heart, see. I will not accept them. I'll not even look at the peace offering of your fatlings. Verse 23, take away from me the noise of your songs. I won't even listen to the sound of your harps. But let justice roll down like water and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And here, just obviously, God, who desires to bless and owns all things and gives them generously is expressing his displeasure not in the richness of the things that he's provided but in the attitude they bring towards them see and he uses some pretty strong language flip over if you would to Amos chapter 8 Amos 8 verse 4 we're almost done so stick with me I know this is hard to hear but I this is this is really where the point gets drawn in okay uh, Amos chapter 8 and verse 4. Hear this, you who trample the needy, to do away with the humble of the land, saying, When will the new moon be over so that we may sell grain and the Sabbath be done that we may open the wheat market to make the bushel smaller and the shekel bigger? In other words, what are they doing? Driving up prices and cheating people. And to cheat with dishonest scales, for six, so as to buy the helpless for money and the needy for a pair of sandals that we may sell the refuse of the wheat. In other words, I'm going to sell the chaff and things that aren't pure and still make my money. The whole thing is about material things, isn't it? And the attitude has, is the opposite of what the Lord told them. So he says, hear this, you who do that. See, these are the ones where judgment is coming. Now look at Amos chapter 4, if you would. And this is where we're going we're gonna to kind of close up. Amos chapter 4. 
And so we fast forward into Israel's future. We see all that's going on here. And it's not a good thing. And it says, um, hear this word. And this is hard to read, and I think you'll, 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 you'll sense it too. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan. And he's not talking about cattle, okay? He's talking about people. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountains of Samaria. So this is the northern kingdom. Who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring now that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness, behold, the days are coming upon you when they will take you away with meat hooks and the last of you with fish hooks. Verse 3, you will go out through breaches in the walls, each one straight before her, and you will be cast to Harmon, declares the Lord. Enter Bethel and transgress. In Gilgal, multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. You know, offer a thank offering also to that which is leavened and proclaim freewill offerings and make them known for so you love to do, you sons of Israel, declares the Lord. But I give, I gave you also cleanness of teeth in all your cities and a lack of bread in all your places. In other words, you go through the motions, but your heart's not there. And I gave you cleanness of teeth. What's that mean? That means you don't have any food. And this is the God who said, you're going to, you're going to inherit cities and you're going to have fields and vineyards and you're going to have more than enough. And that's all going to multiply. And yet, what did the Lord have to do? He made it so they didn't have any food. That's what it means you have clean teeth. You have perfect teeth. You don't have to eat anything. Yet you've not returned to me, declares the Lord. Verse 7, furthermore, I withheld the rain from you while you were still three months until harvest. So he didn't bring the rains when they were supposed to come. Then I would send rain on one city and on another city I would not send rain. One part would be rained on while the part not rained on would dry up. So two or three cities would stagger to another city to drink water but would not be satisfied. Yet you've not returned to me, declares the Lord. So they're right down to rations, aren't they? They're staggered around from city to city to get water. It's like they're back in the wilderness when the Lord said, I provided every single thing for you to test you. You didn't have water. You didn't have food. I give everything for you so that you would know I provide all this. And here they are right back to it. In a land that the Lord had provided, this richness now is barren. See, Verse 9, I smote you with scorching winds and mildew, and the caterpillar was devouring your many gardens and your vineyards, fig trees and olive trees, yet you've not returned to me, declares the Lord. I sent a plague among you after the manner of Egypt. I slew your young men by the sword along with your captured horses, and I made the stench of your camp rise up to your nostrils, yet you've not returned to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were like a firebrand snatched from a blaze, yet you have not returned to me. You were almost destroyed. I delivered you at the last possible second, and you did didn't return to me. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel, for behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what are his thoughts, he who makes dawn into darkness and treads on the high places of the earth, the Lord God of hosts is his name. That's hard to read, isn't it? God goes on to tell them everything he's done to get their attention. And we don't have time to look at it all, but Amos uses quite a bit of sarcasm. Chapter 6, he talks about beds of ivory and eating the best of meats and, and the best of drink and anointing the beds with best perfumes. And listen, beloved, there's nothing wrong with any of those things, okay? God has said that some may be wealthy and he's given them the ability to get wealth. God, through Amos, isn't indicting them for those things that they possess and the things they can afford to do. He is, though, indicting them for their selfishness and their lack of generosity and the absence of compassion and sharing and humility which is how they received what they had to begin with from the Lord. And just as a side comment, that attitude can be there even if you if you have a lot and even if you don't have a lot. It can still be there. And Amos chapter 6, verse 11, you don't have to turn there. It says this, it says, For behold, the Lord is going to command that the great house be smashed to pieces and the small house to fragments. In other words, there's people with a lot and they have the same attitude. It's always, you know, make the, make the bushel smaller and this, and, and make them have to pay more for it and all of that and always desiring to make more, make more, make more, to consume it all on yourself constantly, see? You kind of reflect it in our society where the average person spends a buck thirty for every buck that comes into the house. We're going to see later, you know, consuming everything that comes in every single month. The Lord hasn't desired for us to do that, but to set some away for future. We're going to see all of those things, but here's the thing, see? You can have a lot and have this problem. You can have a little and have this problem. Both the wealthy house and the not so wealthy house. That's what it means. The Lord's going to, the great house is going to be smashed and the small house too. Because that love of money attitude and all this belongs to me because I made it can be there in both homes. Because spiritually, it's not a matter of peeling away all that luxury, just leaving the basic necessities when you're all through, like the Catholic Church is required from time to time or, you know, or through the ages or Hare Krishna or the Amish or whatever, you know, 
because peeling away all the luxuries, there really isn't any end to that. I mean, everything can be a luxury if you think about it that way, right? I mean, a toothbrush is a luxury, right? If you, you can just come right down to the basic things. They're all luxuries. You peel them all away. Does that make it better? It doesn't. It isn't about peeling all that away, see? Dealing spiritually with material things begins with how you feel about what you have, not how much you have. And then how you respond to the Lord in thankfulness and graciousness and how you share. And we just barely touched that. We're going to see that much more extensively as we get to 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. But there's no way we can possibly understand that. If we can't understand these basic things, and as 1 Corinthians 10 says, all of that stuff that happened to the northern kingdom and later to the southern kingdom were given to us for an example and a warning. So it's not changed a bit, has it? And we see what's going on in our culture around us over the last couple of weeks. It's precisely the same thing. It's, it's still men who are greedy and, and who desire what other people have and make all kinds of reasons why they need to get it. it, it that hasn't changed at all. Human nature is coming out in all of its sinfulness, multiplied up with all the crowds and the anonymity they think is, is, is part of that. See, So here's the deal as we close this, because we're done. Here's some questions that... Um, to ask based on how uh, what we know about God from our passages, okay? And I realize this is a connection here that uh, is to the ancient times, but I think that you can see uh, as it as it fast forwards to us and Second First Timothy six, it's precisely the same instruction God gives, okay? So here's some questions on what we know about God from our passages, and uh, you're going to recognize them because they're principles that repeated over and over again in the scriptures. Number one. Where do you set your heart? Where do you set your heart? And I think you can start answering that question very honestly by knowing all the things that you know now. Number two, how do you respond to God's concerning material things? How did you respond to God concerning material things this week? I saw a meme one time. I really liked it. If you only had today what you gave thanks for God yesterday, what would you have? That's a legitimate question. If you only had today the things that you gave God thanks for yesterday, what would you have? Because we don't have anything apart from what the Lord gives. And whether it's great or small, it's still from Him, a gift from His hand. He's provided all that we have and all that we need, and we manage it like He wants us to. All of our needs are taken care of. Do the things you have take His place or His time? And finally, do you thank God for whatever it is and you share it generously? These are very simple questions, and I think easily extracted from the passage. As we close... Just to kind of give you an idea, you know, why did, why did God institute the tenth with his people? You know the answer to this, right? And this, this was required giving. We're going to talk about that more later. But why did he institute a tenth? Did he need the money? No. It was to teach them how to what? How to share. And you know this. God doesn't change. He still wants his people to know how to share. He still wants them to respond from their thankfulness by obedience. And even though we don't support the Levite and we don't have national festivals and we don't set aside a tenth for every three years to take care of the poor of our nation and the alien, there are things in place in our country which was founded on Christian principles that take care of those kinds of things. And so the tithe, as it was instituted, isn't used today for those purposes. But the point was, God was teaching his people how money is to be used righteously. And he is still all about that. And next time we meet over these passages, we're going to lay a foundation of actual ways that God has given for acquiring what we have. And we're going to see that really illustrated very well in the scriptures, more than we already have from an agrarian uh, perspective. All right? Thank you. Bow with me a prayer. And then immediately, if you can, uh, because you have your kids with you, we're going to have a, a brief missions meeting. And so... Um, we'll move right to that. Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to be uh, in the Word. We thank you today for an opportunity to to love you and and to worship you through through worship songs, speaking correct things about you, through prayer time where we can humble ourselves before you and recognize that we are your servants and subservient to you and you're the master and we, uh, we regard you as the one who is the boss and your son is the Lord and we do what he says. We thank you that we could be in fellowship together, which you'd so delight and which you've arranged for all who have called on your name to have a continuing fellowship forever with you and with each other. 
amidst all that you've created for us to enjoy in the future. And we thank you that we could take what we, a portion of what we have, uh, how we prospered and give it away as you've instructed us to do. And we worship you in that way in the offering. And Lord, we thank you that, um, even though these things occurred so long ago, they just seem to be ripped out of the front pages. And Lord, we don't want to be that way, the types of people that we see in Amos. We want to react and use the things you've given in a way that's pleasing to you. And you're well pleased by those things. You haven't required a lot from us. Simply have given some instructions on how to view what we have and what our heart looks like. And so, Lord, I pray that you conform us. You are already working on all of us, I know, and you have addressed issues that need to be addressed. And, Lord, I pray that uh, you will continue to do that. Bring us into conformity so that when we get back to Second Corinthians 8 and 9, we can read those passages and say, I can do that. I can do that. I know what that means. I've experienced you providing, God. God, you have provided these things, the beginning and the end, the seed in the field and, and, and the harvested crop and the bread. And you're in all that mix. And so, Lord, I pray that you continue to work in your church. Thank you that we can be salt and light. Lord, I pray, as Alex prayed earlier, for peace in our nation, for those uh, who desire to stir up trouble and anarchy and, and to overthrow the system and all that foolishness. Lord, I pray that you'll bring uh, judgment on them, a rule of law which you've established to govern man and punishing the evildoer. Lord, I pray that you'll give uh, those police officers and law enforcement people understanding, uh, wisdom as they uh, seek to do just that. And those who are underwriting all of this, Lord, I pray you bring them to justice as well. We want to live in a land in quietness and peace. Be able to provide for the needs of our family. Lord, for those who don't do that, for those who sit home all the time and who are on the government dole, I pray that you will bring about a change in those neighborhoods, churches that can uh, tell them the truth about your instructions from the Word of God to, to work hard and to eat. And Lord, I pray that you will bring about those kinds of things because you're good and because you know how to do it and because your people who are called by your name know these things. I pray that we're clear in graciousness about how to present them. For all these things, we give you praise, Lord. We thank you in advance for the meeting that's to follow and, and for your will to be done. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.